You're listening to Larger Story Messages with Dr. Larry Crabb. For more teaching and resources, visit LargerStory.com. I'm going to pray for Dr. Crabb here in just a moment. I just want you all to know what other students uh, have experienced in this time and then some of the times you're going to have. If you'll stay with us through graduation, which may seem like an eternity, but I promise you when you get there, it's going to seem like about four months. I'm dealing tonight at dinner with some folks that seems like they just started and already they're in their senior year, and then neither of us can believe it. it. It's just, boy, it goes by like that. And uh, so you'll have opportunities along the way to interact with Dr. Crabb through chapel, through workshops, occasionally in, an retreat, in a retreat. And then we capstone the experience your senior, uh, your last semester of your senior year. You'll have a chance to process uh, with some, some things. And I've heard from so many seniors how... They've appreciated Dr. Crabb's presence in ministry and teaching with us throughout their time, but there's something about when you go through the whole cycle and, and you're different as a 22-year-old than you were as an 18-year-old or 24-year-old or however long it takes you to get to that senior year uh, there, and stuff starts making sense that you've heard, but, but the light comes on. And so uh, yesterday and now today we're going to build on, on what was introduced yesterday. Just an amazing opportunity we have for someone who really cares about students in general, but specifically is vested in this university. And he's got a long-term investment here. And really the initiative for the freshman seminar uh, was was uh, was Larry's. Uh, several years ago we had a conversation. I just said, how, how would you like to be involved more with us here? Because he was doing chapels and so forth. And, and he said, I really have a heart for people when they're beginning and then as they prepare to depart. And I think we can give them some handles and help with you know, some of those processes that are there. So that's what today's about. And so would you pray with me just that the Lord will use this in whatever way that you might have need and particularly that there'll be some wonderful revelation and, and understanding that'll be given here today. Now, Lord, we bless your name. It's, it's an unusual opportunity uh, in, in the bigger picture of the world that this many people in this age group can stop everything and take a couple hours to sit before you and, and to seek uh, knowledge and understanding. And as common as that may become for us over the next few years, it's very uncommon in the world in which we live. And so may the specialness and the uniqueness of this moment uh, be realized. And particularly today, I ask, as we always do, that uh, uh, Dr. Crabb will be your mouthpiece. I know he's your servant, and he also desires to honor you and glorify you in the things that he says. And so guide him by the Holy Spirit, and particularly open our minds and open our hearts to not just to hear and write down notes, but just open us to understanding. And prick our hearts where we're in need of conviction or revelation, and open us to what you'd have before us this day. And Lord, I, I pray that this will just uh, be seed planting for a future harvest that will come uh, in our lives. And through Christ we pray. Amen. Well, I had about seven cups of coffee this morning, so we'll take a fair number of breaks. <laughs> I want to know why you all came back this morning. This was not mandated, right? Was it kind of required? Pardon? For some of our FYI instructors required us to be here. They did? Huh. So much for a willing audience. All right, well, you're stuck with being here then. Um, but I'd like to know what's on your mind as you walk in this morning. I gave you a little preview of what I want to talk about today, just what does spiritual formation look like and what could happen during your career here at Colorado Christian University in terms of what it means to know Christ a little bit better. And um, so you had some feel for what I'm going to be acting about for a couple hours. Um, but as each of you walked in the door here in the last 10, 15 minutes and came in and sat down, <clears throat> there, there was something on your mind. There was some, some thought as to what you th hoped maybe this morning might be about or what you hoped you might gain from it. And I'd like you to take just a few seconds and reflect on what that is. You're here partly because you're required to be, some of you. Others are here, you didn't have to be, but you chose to be. But whatever your situation there, 
what is on your mind as you come in and sit down and prepare to interact some and listen to me some? I know that when I go to church or go to a conference or go to a meeting that I have all sorts of things happening in me. Um, most times church bores me. I don't really like going to church very often. Um, that's not supposed to be the way it's supposed to be, but that's how I feel sometimes. Um, feels irrelevant to my life half the time. Um, other times it feels very meaningful. I think it's what God's called me to do, to worship him and to worship him corporately and to be in a community of believers. But I have all kinds of stuff going on inside of me. And if there's one thing about the Christian life that I think I'm learning, and I think there's a couple of things I'm learning maybe, but one thing is God just can't stand pretending. When you pretend, he just is he's not very interested. So you got to get real about what's going on. And I just love to hear some of you say a sentence or two about what's going on in you as you come in and sit down here this morning. What are you thinking? What's in your mind as you walk in? What are you feeling? What are you hoping for? What are you thinking? As you come in and spend three hours that for some are voluntary and for some are required. Sure. Um, <clears throat> well, it really hit me yesterday when you talked about that we need to get real. And I just wanted to learn a little bit more about what that truly means and okay. how we can do that. That hit you, that what it means to get real. Something in you resonated. Something in you went, yeah, I don't know what it is, but it sounds important. Yeah. Was that right? It just sounded like um, something that I need to work on more in my life. What? What makes it sound attractive to you? What's your name? Austin. Austin, that's right. We talked yesterday for a minute. What, what makes it sound attractive to you? You said it sounds like something I need to work on, but I presume, tell me if I'm wrong, that it doesn't feel just like a, a duty or a requirement. It feels like something you would actually like to move toward. Yes. What about it's appealing, getting real? It's scary, it's frightening, but well, it's appealing to you somehow. Why? It's sort of the, the unknown getting pushed into your... Um, outside your comfort zone, and I think to be a true servant of Christ, you know, you need to be true to who you are and true yourself. So even though it's out of your comfort zone, it's part of what is necessary for you to be the servant of Christ that you want to be. So I'm not putting words in your mouth; I'm just saying back to you what you're saying. So the bottom line of what you're saying is there's something in you that would like to spend your life moving toward Christ as his friend and as his servant. You have that desire. Yes. All right, that's a miracle of God's grace, because without the Holy Spirit, that wouldn't even be a part of you. What else? As you come in this morning. Thank you for that. Ma'am. Yeah. You were also talking about yesterday, um, the third thing you mentioned was moving on. Yeah. And I know what God's called me to do, but I'm curious about how you approach it to how we get on while we're still in college, ah. how we grow, how we mature in what we've been called to do. What has he called you to do? I'm going I'm to be a Bible translator in the heart of Africa. A Bible translator in the heart of Africa? When did you become aware that that was God's calling of your life? About a year and a half ago. Really? What made it clear? I was at Team Radio Ministries, and one thing that one major thing they taught us was how to fast and pray. Uh -huh. And it was during one of the sessions where we were fasting and praying for like a week. But I, I kind of figured out God's calling me to Africa and languages and translations and different things like that has always been my passion. So something stirred within you during that week of fasting and praying beyond hunger. Yeah. <laughs> and your thought was, I'm sensing something moving within me. There's a rhythm almost like music. Am I putting words in your mouth again? It feels alive. It feels I, real. Like it was real. It was something I knew was from God. You knew it was from the Lord. You didn't hear an audible voice, but something in your spirit said, this is what I'm called to do. I'm going to spend my life translating the scriptures in an African culture. And so when you heard me talk about getting on yesterday, your thought was, well, I'm not going to be in Africa for the next four years. So I'll be here. And I'm not going to do Bible translation work yet. But what does it mean to get on with my walk with the Lord now? Rather than thinking about getting on then, when I'll be active in a certain unique form of ministry. But what does it mean now for me to get on with my Christian life? And that's what you were thinking about yesterday a little bit. Good. What's your name? Courtney. Courtney. Appreciate that. One or two more. Yes, ma'am. Um, it really spoke to me yesterday when you said that if we're actively seeking God's will, we can really make a mistake. Yeah, that's great. Because um, right now, like, I'm an English major, but I feel God calling me to missions, and so I'm not quite sure yet exactly how God's going to like work the two together. And 
and what he's going to do, but like I desperately want to do God's will in my life. And so I actually felt that this morning God would have something to say to me through what it was that you were going to say today. So you came expecting to hear from the Lord this morning. Yeah. A little bit. And it calmed a little bit of your anxiety when I suggested that maybe if you're seeking the Lord, that he'll see to it. You don't make a long-term serious mistake. That's going to mess up your life. If you really seek him, you'll be able to. And I relaxed you a bit and thought, maybe I'll hear more this morning if I come back. And your name is? Carly. Carly. Great. Thank you, Carly. <coughs> Sir, in the back. I guess this morning I came here and confused. Confused? Yeah. We can get along real well. Because <laughs> uh, when it comes to like my major, I'm pre med. And um, I've been praying about like what God wants me to do with my life, but I really have never felt like He showed me anything. Yeah. Um, and so I've like, just kind of gone up, I don't know, kind of like what I want to do or yeah. what I've always wanted to do. That sounds fine. So I'll go that direction. I feel yeah. wired that way and hope it's God's will. Where else does your confusion extend beyond location of this? Name one. Walk with God. Just confused on how that looks in my own life. When you see people walking with God in their own life, I'm wired different, so what does that mean? Uh, you see folks that you respect that are ahead of you in the path, but the way they're walking with the Lord, certain things they're doing, doesn't feel like it's the way you're wired to walk, but you want to know Him better, but maybe in a different way than they're walking. Yeah. Is that close to what you said? Yeah. I'm confused about, so then what does it mean for me to follow Christ? Yeah. Yeah. Anybody else? I appreciate this. I appreciate hearing from you. Sir? Um, I guess for me, what spoke to me the most yesterday was just your honesty. And um, I didn't feel like I didn't reach that. And like, I was just really impressed with how down to earth you were. And, um, I was screwed up. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, I don't know, just even that, that. You know, like I'm not perfect, I don't have all the answers, but this is what I know. And, um, I don't know, I really appreciate that. So I, I guess I came today excited to, like, I feel like I'm going to be able to learn more from you because you're new. And, <laughs> not just anything wrong. Like, <laughs> I don't know, I don't feel like there's a barrier between us. I'm not old, you're young. And I've married 38 years, and you have been married for what, four? Mm-hmm. Almost five, that's cool. Eyes and lows. Eyes and lows, yeah. I hope your wife's repenting. I think we'll get along better. Yeah, it'll be great. I met my wife when I was 10 years old. That's true. You people are way behind the eight ball here. <laughs> Rachel and I met when we were 10 years old. We had a big 60th birthday party about a month ago, and the woman that has been Rachel's friend all these years, who introduced us when we were 10, came to our party. And um, it was just kind of a fun thing. We met when we were 10, but I couldn't begin dating Rachel then, of course, because she was going steady with Carl. <laughs> and that also is true. Carl's mother um, is the... Typical picture, I don't want her to hear this, um, just a, a control freak. And when Rachel was born and Carl were born, they were born within a couple of weeks of each other, and they were family friends, and Carl's mother decided that Carl and Rachel were going to be married from the day they were born. And what Carl's mother wants, Carl's mother gets. And so they were dating when they were 12, and or when they were 10, in kind of 10-year-old fashion, meaning, you know, sitting in church together sometimes and sharing a hymn book back in the old days of hymn books. And, um, but then God moved mightily, and when they were 12, Rachel had the wisdom to break up with Carl. <laughs> and then we had our first date at age 12. And um, 
We dated off and on some other people throughout the next our teenage years. But we kind of knew that we were going to get married, and so we married at 21. And um, been married now 38 years. Um, and um, we're actually fighting less than we used to. It's kind of a neat thing. Um, we get along pretty well. I keep telling her she got a good deal. And, <laughs> but we have, um, we're doing pretty well. Just, I was just chatting with, Aunt, no, what's your name? Andrew. Andrew, yeah. I was chatting with Andrew a minute ago, and um, just sort of being silly a little bit before things began, but he asked me a serious question. He said, well, how are you doing this morning? And um, I thought about it, and I thought, well, that's a good question. Felt like he actually met it. And so I said, I'm actually doing fairly well. I'm in the middle of a really good season in my life. This morning I got up pretty early and met a, a bit of a new friend who I've known just a couple of months who wanted to get together for breakfast. And we sat down from 7 o'clock on till about 8.40 and had breakfast just down the road here at La Pete. And um, we, we talked about a lot of things. We talked about how we wonder... If after all these years of being Christians, we're, he's 63, got a couple years on me, if all these years of being Christians, we've really made much progress in the spiritual life. Um, the book that I'm spending most of my time in now in the Bible is Revelation. <clears throat> and we began talking about the Laodicean church where, where the risen Lord said through the 86-year-old Apostle John, who was exiled on Patmos, and God wasn't blessing his life in any external way. Uh, he was living in a rock pile because uh, the emperor Domitian was the emperor of Rome at the time, and he decided he was God, that particular man did, and he required all citizens of Rome to take a pinch of incense and to put it into the receiving place in some temple dedicated to him as a way of saying, Emperor Domitian, you are God, and the Apostle John, when he was in his late 80s, refused to do that, so he got put into exile for the rest of his life, and that's where he died. And he writes this book in 1 John where he starts by saying, I just want you all to know that I want you to have the kind of joy that I have. And I'm thinking, wait a minute, the kind of joy you have, you're in a rock, you're 86 years old, you have no friends left, you're in exile, you're living totally uncomfortably, and you're talking about joy? You're talking about the excitement of What? And he opens his epistle in 1 John by saying, I, I, I want, I'm, I'm writing this to you because I want you to have the joy that I have. And my friend and I were talking this morning, do we have that joy? What is the joy John was talking about? And, um, or are we more like the Laodicean Christians who are just getting along fine because, hey, life's pretty good. I really do love my wife. We have a good marriage. We've got two great kids and three great grandkids and two beautiful daughters-in-law. And I get a chance to travel a lot. And I love speaking. And... You know, I do a lot of interesting things, and it's just kind of a fun deal. And am I basically just a lukewarm, nauseating Christian who just is loving the good life? Or am I like the Apostle John, who at 86 years old said, I want you to know something. I have communion with the Trinity, with the Father, with the Son, with the Spirit. I know the Father and the Son and the Spirit better than I know anybody else. And knowing them, even on a rock pile, is so much better than not knowing them in a country club. And we were talking about that this morning at breakfast, and kind of like, oh, is that even in sight for us? Do we know what we're talking about? So we've been talking about the spiritual journey a little bit this morning. So, so I'm coming here a little bit pumped, a little bit pumped about what's possible in the spiritual journey of what God has called us to. And, and I want to begin just by saying something very basic, and then I want to draw some stuff on the whiteboard and get us thinking together about the spiritual journey. But I want to, I want to say this at the outset. You, because you're... Because you're younger, um, you, you have an incredible opportunity that's going to go bad unless you're careful. You've got one, of, one really of three possible directions to end up. One direction is you might just get tired of the whole thing and, 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 and bomb out. One of my best friends six months ago, he's in his late 40s. I've done conferences with him. He's written several books. He left his wife and took up with a woman that he is not his wife, obviously. And she left her husband. He left his wife. He's left the ministry. And um, I just have been puzzled. And I sat with him last Christmas in my living room after he had left his wife. And I said, do you, do you still believe in the gospel? And he said, yeah, it just doesn't work for me. And um, he was a pastor of a very significant church, by significant, terrible use of the term, but size-wise it was large. Some small churches are just as significant, if not more. But he was a pastor of a large church, and now he's pretty much gone the wrong direction. 
And um, that's, you know, that can happen to any one of you. It could have happened to me. It hasn't so far. Um, but that's one thing that might happen. I don't want to end up there. The other thing that might happen that's going to be really common, unless you're really careful, you will end up here. You will end up laid to sin. You will end up lukewarm. If you define life as basically, you know, getting a good job, getting a good mate maybe, having nice kids, having a good ministry, going to church, um, then you've just become part of the American disease. You've become a, a good enough Christian. And that's laid to sin. That's lukewarm. Um, and if that's all you're interested in, then, then this morning will just be really boring for you. Um, but I guess is you're interested in a whole lot more now. And what you're aiming toward and what I'm aiming toward is what the Apostle John experienced, that there's something very deep in my soul that could know God in a way that could change everything I do. That could know God in a way that helps me resist temptations in all sorts of wrong directions, that helps me stay on track, that when I get a blow to my gut that something is still deeper than the blow to my gut. That's really possible. And um, what I wanted to talk about with you this morning is what can you do in the next couple of years that will get you where you really want to go, which is, I presume, toward the kind of intimacy with, with, with God that can change your life and keep you on track until you get home. Let me give you a quote from one of my favorite authors, Pascal, old French uh, philosopher, mathematician, brilliant Christian man. And I want you to think about this quote as a setting for all I want to talk to you about this morning. Um, There's a, I, mean, just, I want to mention a couple of books along the way, and I know you have uh, lots of just free time to read on your own. Um, since you don't, I'll mention the books anyhow. There's a book, uh, one of my favorite authors, a guy named Peter Kreeft, K-R-E-E-F-T. He's a, a Roman Catholic philosopher at Boston College, and he's one of the most brilliant men that I know, and he's written a bunch of books. And one of my favorites by him is called Christianity for Modern Pagans. And it's a um, commentary on Pascal's Pensee, which Pascal wrote as a bunch of thoughts, just as a wise man, just wrote a bunch of thoughts. And the word Pensee, I don't speak French, so I'm probably saying it wrong, but it, it just means thoughts. And he has this book called Pensee, and, and Peter Kreeft takes this collection of wise tidbits from Pascal and makes comments on them. And in that book, he quotes Pascal as saying this, and here's the quote. When everything is moving at once as on board ship. When everything is moving at once as on board ship, nothing appears to be moving. Now there's more to it, but just pause there for a moment. Does that all make sense to you? When everything is moving at once as on board ship, some of you have been on ships and the you know the, the ship is moving, but you're talking to your friend, you're having dinner, and you don't sense the movement because you're all moving at the same speed at the same time. And we all know that right now we're sitting on a, on a globe, the Earth, that's moving on its axis. So there's movement going on right now, but look around. We don't see the movement because we're all moving at the exact same speed. And Pascal is saying, when everything is moving at once as onboard ship, nothing appears to be moving. And then he makes a spiritual application and he says this, when everyone is moving toward depravity, no one appears to be moving. He's talking about the church, not just culture. When everyone is moving toward depravity, when we're all moving together toward lukewarm Christianity, when we're all moving together toward a Christianity that's got very little to do with what God has in mind for us, when we're all moving together in a direction just to want to have a good life and a happy life and lots of blessings from God, and that's what we want, so we go to church to you know, earn our little merit badges, and then God says, you've been to church, so I'll give you a good week. When everyone is moving toward lukewarm Christianity, when everyone is moving toward depravity, no one appears to be moving. And then Pascal finishes the quote by saying this. But when someone stops, he shows up the others by acting as a fixed point. Can you get that? When someone stops, he shows up the others by acting as a fixed point. So I was thinking and praying for y'all, knowing I'd be chatting with you a bit. Um, I just feel a, a real desire and a hope that some of you are going to become fixed points in a, in a really lousy culture. Some of you are going to be fixed points 
And you're going to navigate, not by the shifting winds of culture, but you're going to navigate by the fixed stars of heaven. You're going to navigate by the book, by the scriptures. You're going to navigate by what God has called us to. You're going to navigate by an understanding of life that says, when suffering comes, don't try to figure out how to get out of it, but welcome suffering as a friend. The Apostle James says that. And realize that if you really want to move in the direction that God has for you and become all that you can be, you're going to have to welcome suffering and get a theology of pain, a theology of problems, and, and know what it means not to live to avoid them, but to, but to move through them into a deeper relationship with Christ. What's it going to mean for you to be fixed points? Well, that's what I want to talk about this morning. Spiritual formation, how you all can become fixed points. <coughs> all right, I just gave a little homily there for 10 minutes. Before I continue, I just want a couple of you to say, what went through your mind and your stomach for the last few minutes as I was talking? Just give me a little bit, just a sentence. What were you thinking as I was talking for the last few minutes about Pascal's quote, about the Apostle John and the Isle of Patmos? <coughs> what, was, what was going on inside of you? I was just thinking about how many Christians that I see around the Isle of Patmos and how it's hard to yeah. You look around and you're not terribly encouraged about the possibility of real maturity because you're not sure if you see it very often. And so you wonder about your own journey. You know one of the funnest things I do? Um, one of the funnest things I do that is probably as important to my spiritual journey as anything is I get a chance to talk to a couple of people who have gone through near hell. No Christian goes through hell. But this one particular friend of mine is going through near hell and has for four years. And I had breakfast with him. Today's today, Friday. Wednesday morning, I had breakfast with him. And he said to me essentially these words. This is not quite verbatim, but the gist of what he said was this. After having everything in his life that could go wrong, go wrong. He said, Larry, I came to a point where I could not see one answered prayer in my life over the last four years. And I had to change my whole theology of prayer. I came to a point where I had been begging God for all sorts of things to be different that were just breaking my heart, things that would break anybody's heart. And I feel like I came to an abyss where the choice before me was clear. The choice was either to say, God, you're just not real. You're not doing anything that I thought the Bible told me you were going to do. So I'm going to give up on you. I'm going to abandon you. Or the other choice that I realized I was confronted with was, Lord, I'm going to stay faithful to you if you do nothing visible for me for the rest of my life. If you don't answer visibly one prayer, if you don't change my kids that are breaking my heart, if you don't change this situation, that situation, this circumstance, if you do nothing, I'm going to come to you for you, not for what you do for me. But if I'm going to come to you for what you do for me, frankly, I'm just about ready to give up on you. And he looked at me, and he had tears in his eyes, and he told me how he's dealing with a couple of situations. And I had a, a rare picture of maturity. This guy's a fixed point in my life. I mentioned yesterday, I'm working on a book on prayer. I wrote some of it last night, and I told his story in the book as a guy that just encouraged me and wakened the desire in me for moving toward fixed point Christianity. But when you see most people moving at once his onboard ship toward lukewarmness, you start wondering, is it possible for me? And I hope you never give up the idea that deep spirituality is possible to you. It really is. If I had to name my biggest struggle in my life right now, it would be that. God, am I really following you because you've blessed me wonderfully? I do love my wife. I do have great kids. I, I, I have a, a nice life. And am I really following you because you've given me a nice life? Is that all there is to it? Do I really enjoy you? Or am I saying, to heck with you. Just do your job and keep the blessings coming. And can I actually get beyond that to knowing you? And I only know a couple of people that I think are moving in that direction that deeply encourage me and make me believe it's possible. So I really appreciate your, your concern about that. Anything else you were thinking as I was trying to wait? I was about to say, um, when you were talking about being a fixed point, I was reminded of something that my pastor had told me back in Wharton. He'd given a message on the logic of the lepers about you can't stay here if you go, you know, the, the lepers. Um, I can't remember the scripture right now, but 
they couldn't go into the city because of the famine, and if they stayed there, they were going to die. So they decided to go to the enemy's camp, mm. and they found it deserted. And that was the logic um, behind the message. And what he said was that a Christian life is like going up a down escalator. Uh-huh. If you stop, you're going to be moving backwards. You're going to be pushed back. Yes, just keep pressing forward. Good image. Appreciate that. That's good. Sir? I don't really understand the fixed point. Like, it doesn't seem to me like we would want to stay when, like, when we want to be moving the opposite direction this week. Have you heard the word centered? Is that a word you've heard about being centered in Christ? It's really big in Roman Catholic theology. And the whole spiritual direction movement that is getting very, very sweeping evangelicalism in a way that is good. They're, they're talking about the word centered more. There's a thing called centering prayer and all these spiritual disciplines that are coming more into the Protestant world and the evangelical world. And what they're saying is, I think you're raising an awfully good point, it isn't a question of, of not moving on into deeper fellowship with the Lord and deeper service and deeper obedience to Him. Obviously, there's always that kind of movement. But what's being said that is you will not move well until there's something in you that gets very, very still. Be still and know that I am God. Become very centered in who I am. Know your identity. Know, the, know your future. Know certain things that are foundational to your life. So you are fixed in, in fundamental truth, which then gives you the freedom to move in a different direction than toward depravity. But it's the fixed point part that needs to be the basis for, for a healthy, good movement. Does that respond a little bit to your confusion on that? Yeah. Okay. Let me, um, let me start drawing something up here on the board and um, seeing if we can't get a little feel for my understanding at this stage of my journey and what the Christian life looks like. <clears throat> this is where every one of us is right now. A journeying reality. We're all on a journey. And wherever you are right now, that's your journeying reality. And if I got to know any one of you well, and I said more than what I've already said about, um, well, where are you this morning? You came in here this morning, and some of you made some comments about, well, what you said yesterday kind of piqued my interest, and thought I'd come back, and I'm thinking about this now, and that's part of your journeying reality. Um, but you all know that where you are right now is very deep, it has some complexity to it, but it's a place that most of us don't think about. We don't think about where we are typically. When you go into an unfamiliar mall in a big city, a real big mall, you know, and you don't know anything about the mall, you've never been there before, what's the, what's the first thing you look for? Pardon? The map, the directory. Sure. That's the first thing you look for is a directory. And when you go to the directory and you see that little kiosk thing with the directory and all that and the different floors and all the things pointing to where the stores are and the restaurants and all the rest of it, the first thing you look for on the directory is what? Pardon? Yeah, where you are. And typically there's a red dot. And the red dot has a little black line coming from it that says, you are here. Do you understand that in the Christian community, not many people, as they enter the maze of the spiritual journey, the mall of the Christian life, not many people stop long enough to say, where's the red dot? Where am I right now on this journey? Am I really ticked off? Am I really jealous of somebody? Am I really hating myself? Am I really in tremendous pain over some background things that nobody knows about? Um, what is what is going on in me right now? Why why do I wake up about two mornings a week and, and go through mild panic attacks? That's my red dot on given mornings at three in the morning. I'll wake up and I'll just worry about stuff that I can't control, and I'll just get very, very nervous, and I'll have to spend an hour in prayer just to be able to function for the day. What's my red dot? Where, where, where am I? Where are you? And I would urge you in the course of your spiritual journey through CCU to spend a little bit of time, maybe every day, stopping long enough to say, all right, what, what is my red dot? Where am I in the mall right now? What is happening in me? I'm sitting in this, uh, in this uh, new group that I've been assigned to, this discipleship group, and I don't know anybody. And my red dot may be something like, I hope this goes well, or I don't think I like that person and hope they <coughs> drop out of this group. Um, there's going to be all sorts of things happening inside of you. What's your red dot at a given moment? 
as you start realizing what your journey reality is, do you have any vision of what you might look like when you become spiritually or become more spiritually formed, SF, spiritual formation? What are you going to look like when you become a little more spiritually formed? <clears throat> What's your vision for yourself? One of the, I think, most important things Rachel and I do in our marriage is we write vision letters to each other. I've lived with her longer than I ever lived with my parents, and I've known her more years almost than I've known my parents, so I know her pretty well, and she knows me. Married 38 years. And a couple of months ago, we did it again. We sat down one day and decided that we'd spend about an hour, an hour and a half, two hours, each by ourselves, different places. And, and I sat down and I thought, oh, I know this lady pretty well. And I know that just because the way human beings work, no matter how far you've come spiritually, you always have further to go than you've already come. Do you buy that? Yeah. Would Billy Graham say that? Yeah. Yeah, you sure would. Mother Teresa? Chuck Colson, a name some of you know. You know Chuck Colson's name? Prison Fellowship? Um, he was talking to a bunch of Washington, D.C. Uh, believers. This goes back a couple years. And he said to them these words. He said, you will not make much progress in the Christian life until you realize that right now you resemble Adolf Hitler more than you do Jesus Christ. And you hear that and you go, that's a little overstatement maybe, Chuck. And Chuck's attitude is, no, no, no. When you understand what is in you that's bad, you realize that's what made Hitler kill six billion Jews and I got the same problem inside of me. But the spirit of Christ is now inside of me. I'm forgiven for all that. And I've got a long way to go in becoming like Jesus, but can I even get a, a North Star vision of what I'd look like if I became more of a fixed point, more of somebody who was not moving toward depravity but was moving toward conformity with Christ, what would I look like? What's my vision for myself? What, how, how could I become more like Jesus? What does that mean? And, and Rachel and I sat down and I wrote a vision letter to her, about two or three pages. She wrote a vision letter to me and it, was, it wasn't a, a critical thing. It wasn't like, well, you're wrong here. Why don't you shape up? It was more, it, it was more here, here's what I see in you that reflects the beauty of Christ's spirit. And as that gets more and more developed, here, here's what I think you can become. A year from now, five years from now, this is my prayer, this is my burden for you. What's your vision for yourself? Do you all, have you thought like that? I hope in the course of your life here at CCU, that not only do you pay attention to your red dot, where are you, where are you at a given point, but where could you be as the spirit continues to move? Could you actually move closer to the point where your appetite for knowing God better is stronger than your appetite for anything else? Could that be part of your vision for yourself? Let me just speak candidly to some of the guys. There's not an honest guy in the room who either hasn't or at some point will struggle with all kinds of sexual temptation, pornography, all sorts of things. Um, every honest guy struggles with that some way. And my own position as a psychologist, worked a bunch with sexual addiction and all these sexual problems, I don't believe there's any meaningful cure for sexual addiction apart, and this will sound crazy to some of you, apart from wanting Christ more than you want the pleasure that comes from pornography. If all you do is try to control it and white-knuckle it and I know it's wrong, don't do it, and develop all the good disciplines and keep yourself from you know, going on the Internet where you can have access to it and putting on all the appropriate blocks and certainly not going to bad movies that have all the bad stuff. and Yeah, all that's a battle you got to fight. But you're not going to have any long-term movement towards sexual purity unless your vision for yourself includes, could I actually get to the point where when I'm tempted in whatever direction, whether it's eating disorder stuff or sexual addiction stuff, could I actually come to the point where when I'm tempted to go in a particular direction and I feel a desire to go in this direction, that there's a competitive desire within me. There's a desire in me that actually wants to know God and please Him and bring pleasure to Him 
not as an obligation, but as an appetite that says, this is what I want, and I really want the pleasure and the joy that comes from moving in this direction more than I want the immediate pleasure and joy that comes from yielding to various temptations. What's your vision for yourself? Let me talk a little bit more about that. What's your vision for yourself as a man versus a woman? Now, I've been talking to a lot of people for a lot of years, and I've come to a very strong conclusion that you're all going to want to write down because it'll blow your mind. You've never thought of it before. Men and women are different. Yeah. You all notice that? Man, women are different than men. At least I see that real clear. I've been living with one for all these years. We are really different. Um, She, she thinks it's, she's helping when she says certain things to me that I think are just critical. Um, it was back a couple of years, but she and I were going out with another couple, and they were in the backseat of the car, and I was driving, and we were going down Glades Avenue, this was in South Florida, we were driving down Glades Avenue, and we were all going to go to this pizza place for just a, a night of enjoying some pizza and chatting. So we're driving down Glades Avenue, and we we're going to go to a, um, a, a pizza place we'd been to 50 times before, so I knew how to get there. And what you do, Glades Road is four lanes each way, so I'm going east on Glades Road, and I'm coming to 2nd Avenue, and to get to this particular pizza place, you make a left turn on 2nd Avenue, it's about a mile down on the left-hand side. That's where it is. And I know that because I've been there 50 <laughs> times. And so as we approached 2nd Avenue, I was in one of the lanes on the highway, and I pulled to the leftmost lane, and I came to the stop light, the traffic light. It was red. So I stopped, and I'm sitting there waiting for the light to turn green, and I'm in the left-handmost lane, and I have my left-hand turn signal on. What might you suspect I'm about to do? Turn left. Yes, that's right. You're a guy. You got it. <laughs> um, it happened just this way. This is not just a story. This is what actually happened. The light turned green, and before I could react and press on the gas pedal and do this, my wife, very warmly and kindly and sweetly and just being a good wife, she said, turn left here, honey. <laughs> now what stirs in you at that point <laughs> I mean, what immediately comes to a godly spiritually formed person <laughs> you immediately want to sing the doxology you know praise God from whom this is a wonderful woman I praise God for her and I just love her and she's there for me and man did I make a choice in a marital partner yes yes yes, yes. that's not what happened in me what happened in me, literally, was, geez, I know how to get there. <laughs> and everything in me wanted to turn right. <laughs> I mean, I'd rather have vengeance than pizza. <laughs> and I wanted to yell at her and say, I know how to get there. That's what I felt like doing, but I couldn't do it. I was counseling with a couple in the back seat. <laughs> um, why do you all laugh? You know what you're laughing at? You're laughing at my depravity. I wonder what spiritual formation would look like with me. What spiritual formation would look like in a guy? What's wrong with us guys? Why do we just go like that and women do certain things? And what's with you women? <laughs> I mean, why does my wife, who's a wonderful lady, she really loves me. Why did she think that was helpful? That's not helpful, that's insulting. How come I see it this way? She sees it differently. What spiritual formation look like as men and women? I want you to think about that. Let me take just a few minutes and I'll give you a break in just about ten minutes. Let me talk to you about a biblical view of manhood and womanhood and tell you what spiritual formation might look like and your life as a woman, and your life as a man. What, what makes a guy masculine? What makes a woman feminine? Is that a culturally defined thing? 
Was that a biblically definable thing? Does the Bible even speak to the issue of masculinity and femininity? Why did God in Genesis 1, when the three of them got together, Father, Son, and Spirit, let us, the little community of the Trinity, why did they get together in Genesis 1 and when they had this party going on for eternity and they were having a great time, they just loved being together, why did they get together and say, man, I got an idea, let's make people. What was the idea behind that? Let's make people and man, they're going to fall and we're going to have the Holocaust and we're going to have problems and rapes and murders. Let's make people. What did he have in mind? He had in mind, let's make people that are going to be able to join the party we're enjoying. We're having a party, but we're such loving people, we want everybody to come to our party, but there's no everyone. So let's make everyone. Let's make people that can enjoy the party. And so they made this great idea to make people. And then they said, still in Genesis, the inspired writer then says, male and female created he them. Why did he do that? What's the difference in men and women? Why do he say male and female? Do you all know the word male in Genesis where it says male and female created them? The word male is a word that was used in ancient Near East culture. And it's a word that was used for a member of the king's court. The ancient potentates back in ancient Near East culture, they would have a cabinet like our president has a secretary of state and secretary of commerce. They would have a cabinet positions. And there was one guy on the king's staff whose job it was to remind the king of what he might forget. And the word for male in Genesis 1 is the same word to describe that guy. A guy who remembers and moves. That's what the word means. And so you look at that and you start getting, wait a minute, what's that got to do with manhood? I'm a guy, I'm not a girl, so what's it mean? Remembers and moves, I don't see what that's got to do with masculinity. Um, what, do you, what do you mean, remembers and moves? How's that manhood? A guy is one who God says, there's something I've built about you that's different than a woman. And it's not just the shape of your body, because the shape of your body is a parable of the shape of your soul. Your soul has a definite feminine shape to it, ladies. Your soul has a definite masculine shape to it, men, not just your bodies. So if God is saying in the soul, I want somebody who is going to remember what's true and speak into a situation on behalf of what's true. How come all of us guys are so mixed up on this? Remember what happened in the garden when the serpent tempted Eve? Why did he tempt Eve, not Adam? Why did the devil, in the form of a serpent, come to the woman, not to the man? Why does Paul tell us in Timothy, and this is not a basis for putting women down, although many pastors have taught it this way, I think they're wrong. Why did Paul say in Timothy that the woman was deceived and the man wasn't? About what? What's going on here? When the serpent tempted Eve, he came to Eve and he said to her, did you get it right? Did God really say that you couldn't eat of this particular tree? And, and uh, is that really what he said? And, and let me tell you something. He said you're going to die. You're not going to die. And, and you got to enjoy this tree. It's gonna, God's holding out on you. Why don't you just take something really wonderful and enjoy yourself? And, and did, you, did you really hear God say something other than this? Am I really contradicting God? And so he got the woman all confused. Where did the woman get her information from? Who did God speak to when he gave instructions about the tree? He gave instructions about the tree to Adam before he was created. Read the text, it's all there. So obviously, when Eve was created, which I think must have been one heck of a moment, I mean, here's Adam all by himself. All he has is a zoo around him, a bunch of animals. And God says, all right, name the animals. So Adam had to look at, you know, that's a rhinoceros, uh, that's a giraffe, that's a lion, that's a, that's a bear. And after all these naming animals, I think Adam was saying, and they're really neat and I like paradise, but I think something's missing. I don't know what it is. I think God's chuckling a bit and saying, hey, wait till you see what I have planned. <laughs> Take a little nap here, Adam. So he puts him to sleep, takes the rib out. Adam wakes up and there's a... Rhinoceros? 
pig? No, a woman. Can you imagine a man seeing the first woman? What the Bible say that he said? This is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. He didn't say it that way. He went, yo, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. I can relate to this differently than to the dogs and the cats. And this is, whoa, I can spend an evening with her. I take the dog for the walk, but I want to spend some time with her. And then after enjoying each other in every possible way, sexually, spiritually, emotionally, serpent comes to Eve. Where was Adam when the serpent came to Eve? Pardon? They're with her. How do you know that? Because, it's, I mean, I've read it, but it was some Greek word about how he was actually there with her. Uh-huh. Hebrew word. The Bible says that serpent talks to Eve. Eve takes a bite of the fruit. And then it says he turns, she turned to Adam after taking a bite of the fruit. And the phrase in the Hebrew is, who was with her? And the structure of the Hebrew language suggests that that was an ongoing presence in the entire little story. The evidence is clear that Adam was right there while the serpent tempted Eve. Is that important? Yeah. Remember when a Hebrew scholar came into my office here at CCU about 10 years ago and said to me, Larry, where was Adam when the serpent tempted Eve? And I said, fishing? And I had no idea. He said he was right there. Right there in the entire temptation, Adam was there. And I remember sitting up when this Hebrew scholar said this to me. I'm no Hebrew scholar. And I said, are you sure? Does the Bible teach that for sure? Because if he was there, I think it's important. Not sure why, but I think it's important. And so I called up literally seven Hebrew scholars across the country and said, was Adam there? And one top-level scholar called him up and said, I want to know, was Adam there when the serpent tempted Eve? And he said, nah, I don't think so. I said, you're a scholar. You can do better than saying, nah, I don't think so. Have you studied it? And he said, well, no. And I said, well, study it. I want to know if Adam was there when the serpent tempted Eve. And I got quiet on the phone. And he said, you mean now? And I said, yeah, I'll wait. So <laughs> he went and got his Hebrew materials. And he's muttering away in Hebrew on the phone. And I'm just sitting there waiting for I don't know how long it was. And it happened just this way, literally. After whatever period of time it was, this guy screamed into the phone and said, that son of a gun was there. <laughs> now why is that significant Adam had said to Eve honey it is really good being with you God is our God he comes and talks to us in the cool of the evening we're enjoying God we've got this paradise there's no weeds no animals are trying to eat us up there's no problems no kids yet even that's a plus maybe for some um, and we're just enjoying each other it's terrific but God did say something he said there's a tree one over there, not the one on the center, that's the tree of life, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, don't eat of that. Because if we eat in that, in the day we eat, we're going to surely die. Eve, did you hear? That's what God told me before you were created. And Eve is there going, okay, thanks for sharing that. Yeah, of course. Now the serpent comes along and says, did God really say that? And Adam's standing right there. Can you picture what actually happened? I mean, this is narrative. This is not fictional. I believe this is a true story. And I imagine what happened was the serpent's talking to Eve and saying, did God really say that? And Eve is looking at the serpent and, did God say that? And she looks over at Adam and goes, and Adam's there. Adam didn't remember and move. Adam didn't remember and move. That's manhood. The fall was the destruction of manhood. And you and I as guys struggle with that to this day because of what Adam did. Did God really say that you're going to die? God didn't say you're going to die. God said you're going to surely die. Well, that tree that's in the center of the garden, God didn't say it was the center of the garden. The tree of life was the center of the garden. God said the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is over on the side. Satan deceived her about that too. Adam heard all this. He knew that Satan was telling his wife lies, and he didn't say a word. What should he have done? Yeah, should have said something. I don't know what he should have said exactly, but maybe like, that's not true. This, this serpent, whoever he is, uh, I don't know who he is exactly, but, but he's telling lies because I remember what God said and I'm going to move into this situation. That's manhood. Anybody struggle with manhood? 
Not you women now. <laughs> you struggle with men, but not with manhood. <laughs> What's it mean for God to struggle with manhood? Why, when one of our sons rebelled during his late high school and early college years, why was I not strong? Why did I feel so destroyed by the fact that my son, who I had mentored as best I knew, my son, who I had fathered as best I knew, wasn't moving in a good direction, why did I get really mad about it and then retreat? Why did our marriage go bad for a couple of months? And, and I would say, well, Rachel, you're just not talking to him in a certain way that you ought to. And, and why, did I, why did I not remember that there really is a God who's called me to be faithful, even when life falls apart? And why would I not move into the situation with the wisdom of God? Why don't I move into it with the anger of immaturity? I wasn't much of a man during those years. And my wife, therefore, wasn't able to rest on the strength of her man because her man wasn't very strong. Manhood. Remembering the truth about who God is and moving into situations. But let me tell you, just the last sentence on this, the way that you're going to feel the struggle most keenly, men, in the absence of spiritual formation, the way you're going to feel the struggle most keenly is when something comes up in your life that you're not sure you're very good at, that's when you're going to back away. That's why Adam backed away. Adam had never been confronted before with temptation from the devil. Adam had never been put in a situation where he didn't know what to do. God had given him, according to the record in Genesis, he had given him no instructions on what to do if a snake comes up and talks to your wife about the tree. There was no instructions. What God was saying was, Adam, be a man. Remember what I said and act accordingly. The areas where I'm pretty gifted and pretty good are the areas that I move into with ease and confidence and courage. But when I face up situations that I'm not very good at, that I'm intimidated by, I tend to back away. I tend to go back to where I'm good as opposed to where I'm not sure if I'm very good. And as a result, my manhood is compromised every time I back away from a situation where I'm not sure of myself. Can you hear that? Does that make sense? If we had a small group of guys now, could you all tell me stories about where you struggle with that too? Like maybe, you know, you really got a good brain for mathematical type things. And so in classes here that depend on those kind of talents, you're in the front row, your hands are raising, you're doing your homework, you're working hard, but you're not very good at certain social areas, and so that's where you kind of back away and don't take the risk of moving into a situation where you're not sure what to do. Every time you move away from a situation you're called to enter because you're feeling threatened and incompetent, you violated your masculinity. And a woman's not going to feel your strength. And she's not going to enjoy the prospect of rest in your presence. Last story before the break. When Rachel and I were married 25 years, we went back to Bermuda where we honeymooned. We spent our last dime. We finished our honeymoon with $100 to our name. I'm really good at financial matters. Um, 25 years, we went back to Bermuda. When we ended our little celebration for about a week in Bermuda, we went to the rocks that are jutting out into the ocean there. It's beautiful, beautiful setting. And our last night in Bermuda on our 20th anniversary, we um, sat on the rocks together and we said to each other these words. We said, now that we've known each other for 25 years as husband and wife, if we were to re-say our vows, what can I say to you as your man? The vows I said earlier were, you know, typical, I promise to love, honor, cherish, till death do us part, let's get over with and get to bed. You know, I mean, that was the way you think of it. <laughs> um, but now 25 years later, if, if, I, if I could say, what is it that, what is it that I could say knowing a little more about a, a woman that I've lived with and knowing a little more about my struggles as a man and your longings as a woman? What could I say to you? What vow could I make now to you that if I made this vow, your feminine heart would go, yes. Oh, yes. What, what could I say that would do that to your, how could I touch my woman's heart? And she asked the same question. What could I say as a woman, knowing you as a man, that if I were spiritually formed and I were fully the woman God called me to be, what would I vow to you that your heart as a man would go, oh, you are gorgeous. You're everything a man could desire. 
I'm so glad I'm married to you. You have met me as a man with your femininity. What could I say to you? What could you say to me? And I'll just tell you what I said to her. As we thought about it and sat there on the rocks, very romantic, nice setting, and just prayed and thought and reflected, what I said this to her, this is what I said to her. I said, honey, my vow to you after 25 years of knowing you assumes all that I said 25 years ago. Nothing's wrong with that. But let me tell you the center of what I'd say to you now. No matter what comes into our life, I will never quit on God. I will pursue him with everything I have for the rest of my life. And she said, she began to cry. She said, you couldn't say better words than that. I feel there's something very masculine in knowing there's a God and you're going to remember that and move in accordance with that. What's your vision for yourself, guys? As you become men more and more. Think about that. We'll talk about the ladies after a little bit of break. Thanks for listening to Larger Story Messages with Dr. Larry Crabb. To subscribe, visit LargerStory.com.